unbelievable. Can you believe that this is the 50th episode of Coffee and Geography? I never thought it would go this long, uh, last this long, be so popular. Amazing. Thank you, everyone, for your support. Um, Please continue to share, subscribe, rate, give five stars. We really, really want to keep this going. I've had amazing conversations. And with that in mind, this is a special episode, kind of sort of like highlights, best off package. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to share the audio to my Coffee and Geography um, session from the Geographical Association Conference 2022 back in April. So what you're about to hear is some clips from various episodes, but a discussion taking place between me and people in the room about how those discussions make us feel how they can be used within teaching and enlighten people and enhance the world experience of our students in the description you'll find a link to uh, the transcript of the clips and also um, just some other bits and bobs that you can enjoy relating to this episode so do enjoy the listen Uh, but before you do don't forget subscribe rate share everything post a review all of it helps it plays with the algorithms it bumps us up and it gets more listeners and that means i can keep on going this and getting some wonderful conversations here we go welcome to coffee and geography where my guests and i geek out about the world and everything on it discovering that we are all geographers in some way shape or form I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them, or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button, and enjoy the listen. This podcast is sponsored by the World Energy and Meteorology Council, or WEMSI for short. WEMSI is an international organisation focused on weather and climate data to support energy transition, and we also work with educators. WEMSI have created Teal, an easy-to-use, free visualisation tool that enables you to explore climate variables for the past 70-plus years. Get started at tealtool.earth. Find us at wemcouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at wemcouncil. Right, folks, so let's get cracking. Let's talk to you about what this this is all about. So this started off as a complete... um, isolation project really you know that sense of loneliness that disconnect and thinking to myself that you know we're all apart from each other because of covid and we we all started to kick off conversations quite a lot online um and i think that's been one of the silver linings of of the pandemic is that we've done a lot more connecting actually than we probably would have done usually i know for example you know no you're here in the room and and cat and we've done quite a fair bit with decolonizing geography and i really do think that the pandemic has been somewhat of a catalyst for it because we've been, I wouldn't say forced, it's not the right word, but we've, it's helped us to connect together and work online and work virtually. And so when I started, when I had this idea of a podcast, it's only because a friend of mine had a podcast and I was on his podcast. And then we were chatting after he recorded and he was like, he was like, I was like oh, this is pretty cool, I could do this. It's, it's, why don't you start your own one? He was like, oh, well, <laughs> but people were fed up listening to me. And I seriously, it's like, and then I, then I put it out on Twitter, said, should I do a podcast for geographers and geography teachers? And it was quite an overwhelming positive thing. So it really was just to have a conversation about geography, um, regardless of who the other person was. And they could have been a 
Most of them are geography teachers because that's who I know, that's the circle I'm in. Uh, friends who don't consider themselves geographers but I rope them in anyway. Um, and people I've never met or talked to before that I just approach and there's a couple of people who will come up on here. I've done 40 conversations now, 4-0. I never expected it to go this far. All of these conversations you're going to hear, they were genuine conversations where the guests were the one who gave me the topics to talk about. So the way that this works, and you're all welcome, I know Kat, I've asked you many times. <laughs> um, so the, the guests get to choose what they want to talk about, and then I basically structure the conversation around it, but there is no script involved. It really is organic. So everything you're going to hear now is based on a conversation. The reason why it's called coffee and geography is like you're sitting over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. It's just a natural conversation that's come out. So what I'm going to ask you to do is have a think about, I picked nine snippets from 40, 45 minutes an hour episodes. Um, really lots of fun listening back to these, but and I could have picked so many more. So I'm going to go from nine to one, which is why it's kind of in a kind of weird sense. I'm not going to talk too much about it because I'm going to let these folks do the talking. So on the screen you'll see this, you'll see the person who I spoke to, you'll see the words that they came up with at the end of the episode because I wanted to link all the people together. So this is where the words come from. So Eli, at the end of their episode, I said, right, for the next guest, can you pick a word that they need to link to geography or, or to identify with? So Eli came up with the word cryptid because of kind of the stuff that Eli talked about, but it could be any word that could be something talked about. Some of these are longer than others, some of them are quite short. So I'll let them do the talking. You start caring when someone says like, it's like, why do I care that like these songbirds in San Francisco have different pitches now? And it's like, you should care because like San Francisco's urbanization has caused these birds to change the way that they sing to each other, which means that like something as like as pervasive to us as like the sound of cars can totally alter the way that like a bird sings a, like a love song. Like that to me, I'm like, that's what matters. It's not like, oh, the pitch is different. So... So the first one then, experiencing, perhaps I should say, change in the local environment. So this is Eli's experience of, of how wildlife has been changing in San Francisco because of development and climate change. So having these conversations allowed this to happen because we all talk about the global scale, don't we? We all talk about maybe even the regional scale, but we very, very rarely talk about the changes that are taking place on a local scale. And so having the conversations of individuals, you can actually get to get quite introspective with regards to, well, actually, this is happening in my locale, even to the smallest thing, noticing the way songbirds sing. And then you can start to investigate, or get students maybe to investigate how, why is that a problem? And then investigate other examples. So another example from the podcast um, was uh, with Phil Humphreys, we talked about how albatrosses are starting to divorce, and that's actually the proper scientific term, because albatrosses make for life, uh, how albatrosses' divorce rates are going up because of sea surface temperatures rising, um, which of course is more of a global scale kind of thing, but you can connect that with the same process that's taking place because of how songbirds are changing their pitch, so maybe they're unable to mate now because they can't call each other, they can't won't be, you know, it could be a bit, and then the, the hushing and the noises of the traffic is what's causing this disruption. I would, and every single one of these things you hear, I didn't know. I was like, what? So if that's a realisation for me, then maybe use an educator or maybe just a student can use it. So what, that would take in what, 30 seconds of your teaching time to play that? And then get the kids to discuss it. Right, 
get. So let's say some of these are longer than others. I'm never going to stop boasting about this. Some of you might recognize this face because this is um, an actor, Adil Hussain, who is he's a famous Indian actor and he's in, some fil he's in films like Life of Pi and stuff. Um, I took a punt on this because <laughs> I found out that he has a geography degree. So he, he's got a, an undergraduate degree in geography and I just took a punt and I said, I emailed him and I said, Hi, <laughs> fangirling, right? <laughs> and I was like, you wouldn't talk to me for this podcast all about geography, and it's going to be like geographers listening to geography teachers. And I've got, I, first of all, I thought there'd be no reply because he's probably so busy. Or he would say, thank you, it's so kind, but no thank you, which is most of the common reply. But he was like, yes! Amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so Adil Hussain, so if, you, if the most famous movie he's, he's recognisable for is Life of Pi, he plays the main character's father. And he's also in Star Trek Discovery, so which is the main reason why I contacted him. I'm <laughs> tricky. Um, this is incredible. This this what what Adil says here. Are you able to describe to us a time where maybe you've had that experience with nature, where nature has made you look within and think? I mean, you've you've alluded to it already by the way that you've been talking. Um, but has, has nature done that for you? We're like really, really gone introspective on, on yourself? Immensely, immensely, uh, significantly, and miraculously so. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, I just uh, would give you an example. Sure. Um, I uh, was lucky uh, to be on a river island for three and a half years, living in a hut without electricity and running water next to a running river. And in the wilderness um, in in, in southern yeah. part of India, and and because of my search uh, for a better way to embody characters or roles, rather, I prefer to use the word role mm. than character. I uh, I to to understand uh, because, as I said, that the physical body is the most. Uh, palpable thing and most tangible thing that we we sense, you know, our five senses and the physical body. So I wanted to understand this instrument uh, through which I, I express myself, uh, in, in, you know, while I am acting. One of the uh, activities that we did was to connect with the five elements and especially water, fire, uh, nature. When I say nature means the rocks and the earth basically, and wind and, mm -hmm. and the sky. And uh, we uh, used a, a technique from the Hawaiian shamanism called uh, grokking. It's not an English word, mm. uh, but it's a technique to embody the other. And that other could be anything or any any idea. Uh, mostly it's about a physical a thing outside of you. How to embody that, how to bring it into your system and to become one with it. Uh, so we worked a lot, and one of the there are hundreds of stories. Uh, if I start writing a book, probably it will be a not a trilogy, but probably ten volumes <clears throat> if I have the time one day and patience to write. <laughs> um, so one of the stories I remember that I was working myself with a jack jackfruit tree, and I was after four hours of un, you know uh, uninterrupted work. Uh, which led me to a very deep space of consciousness and uh, and si solitude and silence and quietude. 
I don't know how to say, not very profound, but the experience was so profound. The only thing which came to my mind after four hours, that, oh my God, uh, this tree is my greatest grandmother. Means not grandmother or grand-grandmother, but the primordial grandmother. Right. And who is ready to feed me, and who is ready to allow me to climb, to smell, to feel, to hug, to cut, to chop, to eat the fruits, you know, to make anything I would like. So, so sacrificing, so giving, so um, an all-embracing grandmother, greatest, as I said, the primordial grandmother is willing to sacrifice itself for my well-being. I was... I could have spoken to Adele for hours now, and and actually it was his wife told him that he needed to go. Um, <laughs> he, we were having such a great chat. But <clears throat> I was, what was so great about this conversation was was getting you know when we when we speak to actors, whether they're you know no matter their level of celebrity, we, we get this kind of obviously rose-tinted view of them, and what we don't understand kind of the people that they are behind them. So speaking to Adele and like. This process that he went for for this this role that he was preparing for when he was acting, and I was like, he used that real deep connection to nature in order to kind of gain that, and that was it was so insightful. And this is one of the things that made me appreciate that, like you know, actors are human beings as well, and they have their own processes, and, and they're willing to give up their own time and stuff like that. But how people have these deep deep connections to nature, and that got me thinking. Well, okay, if someone like Adil, and he talked about his past, about he, he grew up in Golpara, and uh, he was actually a stand-up comedian before he was an actor, um, before, after he did his geography degree. So he's not, you know, someone who's grown up on a farm, and, uh, you know, he's an urbanite and things like that, but even he got this deep connection to nature. And if he can develop this, it made me think about, what about people who have a deep connection to nature, and of course all the changes that are taking place because of um, human activity, climate change, like that. How are we destroying people's connections to things? And then when a deal talks like this, I'm starting to think about, well, eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, you can now understand why it takes place because we're pulling our human spirit away from this deep connection nature. And um, so that was something that, and the way I relate to it is that whenever you've had that time when you just caught your breath because you, you, you've seen something, whether it's, it could be an animal, it could be a landscape, it could be you know something in nature, it could have been the storm coming over from the horizon, something in nature takes your breath away, and it's, it just makes you think that those moments need to be treasured a little bit more. Uh, if any time, if anybody's got any comments, queries, or questions, do interject, so you know. Are you able to do so? There's that. Okay, so number seven. So, <clears throat> Ro is a quirky friend of mine from Norwich who came up with a toenail. Which was really, and I would strongly recommend you listen to 28, because Tawny uh, did a, a brilliant, brilliant connection to the word toenail. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but she did talk about how, how it made, you know, it's a way of showing how your feet connect to the earth and things like that. It was like, whoa, and like totally turned the kind of comical choice into something quite profound. So, um, of course, when it comes to listening to voices and common conversations, one thing that that can do, of course, is enhance invisibility, representation, change, stereotypes. So a very short one from Rogan. Important things about autism is actually showing that it's, it's not just why it's this insensitive, intelligent men, you know? I mean, one of the reasons why I got so late diagnosed was because that's all that we see of autism. That's all that we think of it as. And it's important um, 
as much as you can to be proud of your diversities, whether that's autism, you know, queer identities or, or something else. It's important that you're loud and proud. You need to show that it's a superpower. You need to demonstrate to people that it's not just this one idea that you see on TV and it, it helps other people feel at home. So before we move on, I want you to think about that, that one student or a couple of students that you've had in your class or a colleague of yours or a peer of yours or a trainee teacher that you've had, right, who on a normal average day don't see themselves because of a character trait or an identity that they have, because the career path or, or the... Or the cohort or the demographics that they're in, there's just no one like them. And you get somebody who then speaks like this, how do you think that might change the level of motivation, aspiration, determination of that young person or that person? I think I've got a student in mind who's very similar, who's mm. female, white. Um, diagnosed with autism in year 11 so very kind of late very in late, the school yeah. career yeah. incredibly bright one of the most high working but very high levels of anxiety potentially linked to her autism in terms of how she sees the world and mm. that kind of side and going if she was more aware of potentially you think there were more people who were more open with who they are and that is the defensive walls that sometimes go up in how she interacts when yeah. it's challenges that might be Maybe not change that, but almost means she's not alone in that fight. It may not change at all how she is presenting, but in terms of internally, yeah. maybe she's not alone in how she's trying to communicate to the world, and she's how she might feel about communicating yeah. the diagnosis that she has. That I think last time I asked, she told one other student, but all the staff know. And we're very aware of that, and we yeah. knew way before she did. Because, um, yeah, and, and but, there's stigma involved in it, and things yeah. like that. And it just, and then you, when you have conversations like this, you realise actually how many people out there are neurodiverse in one way, shape, or form. And in fact, I, 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 I'm neurodiverse myself. I, like, I, I prefer the term neurodiverse rather than neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. um, because having, having kind of a quirk of your mental chemistry is just part of the spectrum of the human, of the human race. Yeah. So um, the more, more kind of things you see, and so speaking to Ro, a fantastic project in Norwich called um, Pride in STEM, Being Queer. And so and there was an ex exhibition um, that took place through Norwich Science Week and, and they had it in the forum and it was really, really good. And then a lot of, a lot of kids and school groups reported that they felt so much more like, the, like science and STEM could be for them now. You know, it's like, oh, because I'm dyslexic, I would never be a scientist, which is complete nonsense, obviously. Right, some of you may know uh, Louise, so Louise is a geography teacher, so plenty of geography teachers on this. This was amazing. Um, so, white cisgender male, right? But even Louis had this really interesting story to tell about being quote-unquote third culture. You're, you're, I guess therefore you're half British, you're half French. Yeah, but correct. Do you feel more than that then? Because you were talking about your grandparents and everything. Yeah, so it's... Earlier. It was a, it, uh, growing up. I think it's always been flexible, not flexible, but so it's evolved with me, my identity as a where I'm from. If that makes sense, because that, that was a classic question. It's like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, where do I start? How long do you have? Yeah. Um, and I think it was very much. Mum was 
French. Uh, dad was English. They worked. Uh, we were in Brussels for the European Commission, which is where the, uh, my father worked. And um, and as growing up, I always thought all my friends were in an international school. But equally, when you grow up, I remember my sister and I always found it a bit odd to not be a hundred percent of something. Right, um, okay. and it's even little things like you'd go to friend's house and you'd play some like board games and they'd come up with like a TV pre- if it was some uh, some sort of acting or charades, charades and you'd come up with like a uh, TV presenter of the 1980s in France and we we're like no idea who they are and then it come <laughs> up with a friend's character from, from obviously the TV show and all my French friends were like never heard of that I'm like well, who are you guys never having heard of friends and so it's always we weren't fully immersed in French culture we weren't fully immersed in the English culture and we were a bit of let's say 75% of everything and there were moments as kids we were like oh gosh we're literally always different um, and wow. now I actually really like being different and I make it a point of I, I make it a big part of who I am uh, and so I big up the French here massively but if I go to France <laughs> I'm sure I'd big up the English part humongously uh, so yeah <laughs> so I really love that conversation with, with, with Louis talking just, just that, that sense he said, the realization that actually we don't fit in totally anywhere, you know, because of this, this kind of third culture kind of aspect. So how many students in your room are probably like that, who they may look on the surface that they are part of, part of that cohort, that demographic, but really they don't feel like they specifically fit into one or the other. And are, are we guilty as educators of, 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 putting, them, of putting them into boxes when... I mean, I, I could go on all day about talking, you know, about being outside the binary, uh, but, um, you know, how many students, and I'm not talking about gender then, I'm talking about just cultural identity, national identity. Um, so being very, very aware of that. So, and it's such a shame that I'm not back in the classroom teaching face-to-face every day anymore, because these are all these things I would now be thinking about, like, in my lessons. Because I, a lot of times I used to say, oh yeah, well, we all know this, don't we? Or or you know that thing, even if it's like a local, that thing down the road, and I'm just assuming that because they're all a certain demographic, they're gonna know what I'm talking about. So, well, Something just, a colleague and I were just talking about having been to the Margaret Roberts section, I don't know if anyone else said oh, well, about yeah, fabulous. Of yeah. course. And then we were saying, you know, actually, we don't even know what their starting point is. Yes. Like, I teach in Southampton, you know, how many people have left Southampton? How many people are, were born somewhere else? And just even actually, just really almost, we should start our year seven geography with like, Let's just see what all of our starting point is. Mm. And like, as someone who taught in a what, suburban stroke rural school, even the experiences between the students were so different mm-hmm. because you could have some students in that room who are from isolated farming communities where they, their house is like literally one of only, you know, one in that one grid square, mm-hmm. you know, and they need a car or anything to get around. And you've got some students who are from the village where the school is, so they can get around, there's a community, there's shops. And you've got other students who are in the inner city of Norwich. That's, you know, but they were all white British working class stroke middle class kids. And even categorising them like that was completely unfair and insufficient. So, yeah, good point there. You are, you are. <coughs> right, um, we... No, 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 and Kat and I know Dal very well. He's a member of uh, Decolonising Geography. Um, and yeah, this was really, really interesting. He was talking about cultural code switching when he overheard his dad have some uh, conversation on the phone one after the other. So this is really interesting. 
So for myself, I grew up in South London. I grew up in an area called Thornton Heath, and I can barely remember the accent I had at that point growing up. I can remember some of the slang I would use. Um, I think I spoke a lot faster at that time. But when I was growing up, I have this really distinct memory of my dad on the phone. Um, so I, I think I was I was in the 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 at, on the at the kitchen table. I was I was. I think I was eating and he was like in the hallway on the phone. So, you know, back when phones had cables um, into the <laughs> yeah. wall and he was talking to a friend and he was speaking in what I considered to be his normal voice. And in quick succession, this might've been over an hour or it might've been over 20 minutes. I can't remember it that precisely, but I remember him finishing that phone call and starting another one, which I believe was with one of my uncles in Jamaica, uh, Jamaica being where both my parents are from. And completely different accent like like you know full what i would consider to be um and i i the reason i say that so distinctly is because i think it's very different to what we would consider the television jamaican accent right um but what i consider a very rich slightly different intonation different tone accent and him talking to what i believe to be my uncle and then again later on that evening making another phone call to what I believe was a work colleague and it changing again. And I remember when he finished his calls, I was like, dad, why do you speak so differently on the phone? And he said to me, he may not have said it as uh, poetically as this, but you know, he said, I speak to be understood. And he said, so depending on who I'm speaking to, I speak in a way which best conveys a message which they will understand and will allow me to form the closest relationship with them I can. And I thought, Helen, what you tend to do, you tend to see if you can find your own. Whenever somebody talks like this, you see, if, can, I, can I relate to this in a way? And I had a thought about this because I'm originally from um, South Essex and North London. And I realised that actually, yeah, whenever I talk to my parents, I really do start talking, you know, a bit more like this and I'm like, right, Dad, doing, you know, yeah, going down to Guildford, you know, because that's what I'm doing, you know. And like, but that accent was changed, I code switched when I started teaching because my kids were like, we have no idea what you're saying. You know, and to what extent are, are our voices both an asset but also a barrier to communication and stereotypes that we're taking to that kind of stuff? Why would Daryl and his dad feel the need to code switch? You know, but what Daryl did tell me was he's not he says, yeah, it seems like a shame that I have to code switch with my voice my accent, but it was, for me, it was my choice, he said. So that's a really interesting point. It actually reminds me of when I was on teaching practice in Stafford, yeah. in the Midlands, <clears throat> and I was well aware of the Stoke accent, but for me, I could never say castle, I had to say castle, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I come from the south, but I was teaching about Castle Street or Castle Street, and it's nothing, you know, like it's not a different country or anything. Yeah. But I felt under quite a bit of pressure thinking, do I really say castle or do I say castle? Because actually in my little world, castle's taking the mick out of them. But in their world, they're just going to giggle. And of course, I decided to well, have to go to the castle because I thought, actually, that's more like what I would say. But they, of course, had the reaction of giggle through the whole whatever. And then I said, look, it's your geography. We all come from different places or whatever. But it was really interesting because I just knew that split second. What was I going to say? Yeah, and I think that's great. So it's like, turn it into a teaching moment. Turn it into, use, use these, these things themselves as stimulus. Use themselves as curriculum artifacts. Our voices are curriculum artifacts, you know. 
Um, so yeah, I did. I I I stopped morphing my voice too much, um, which is a bit bit strange to say so now because I'll be starting voice therapy soon. But um, it's so interesting how you know you can build a whole geography simply on voice and language. And uh, so listening to this conversation, you know, uh, getting getting someone to speak about a very you know the same topic that they're learning, but in a, from a, even in a different accent. How does that change the way you make think about it? And so maybe when um, when we show videos of some like a geographical process, whether it's a human process or a physical process, what think about what what video you're using by the way that the focus folks are communicating and their voices. Does that voice take away from what you're what you're trying to teach, or actually does it add? Does it make a difference if you've got a documentary where you have the BBC accent is what is talking about the process, or is it, I don't, I don't know, the best thing I, I used was um, the eruption of uh, Soufre Hills in Montserrat, um, and interviewing the local people, and the local people who were talking and taking, you know, and you see you got that really, really kind of rich, lesser Antilles accent, you know, talking about how it's impacted, and it was just, you could tell that the kids were more attentive, more interested, those bits, than the classic, you know, BBC narration over it. So, uh, uh, and until I had that conversation with Daryl, I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. So again, the benefits of having conversations. Right, what are we up to now? Can, there's a really yeah. random side point to that exact point, which is thinking about access to resources. Yes. Is when you start putting subtitles on and changing the voice of what's saying, if it's auto subtitles, it goes wrong. Yes. The students are then focusing on working out what's wrong in the subtitles than listening to what yes. they're being shown, which. I've noticed, and I because I have to put subtitles on for some students, I then have to be really careful which videos I'm playing for how yeah. accurate are the subtitles, and that is often linked to what accent is it. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating, and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. Now, that's that's amazing that you said that because the next person come yeah. So and because algorithms and stuff are geared towards people you know like us, right? Um, and it doesn't deal with, you know algorithms. They're not. They're not inherently racist or anything like that, but the folks who program these are not necessarily racist, but they will use they will use their biases to generate these algorithms. So they usually come, you know, if you don't speak the proper Queen's English, you can have a struggle with that. And actually, now with Keston, I will admit this, right? The transcript for Keston I had problems with. For two reasons. One, because his accent is not suited for an auto-transcript. For the exact reason that you said, right? Because the because the algorithms just do not pick up uh, a Trinidad, Trinidadian and Tobagan accent very very well. And then when I was listening to that, because my ears are used to the accent of the culture that I'm from, I had trouble kind of thinking what is Keston saying here. And when I was, you know, and there was a couple of times in the podcast I actually asked him, you know, can you just do you mind repeating again? And he was like, Kit, don't apologise. It's like I get to, but he's quite well spoken because he's he's you know he's a doctor. He he. he Lectures and teaches, so so he, he says my accent. If I said, if I was to 
let go of my accent, a bit like a devil. Like, you're no chance. <laughs> so this is really interesting. So this is using Keston's lived experiences and his own um, experiences with regards to um, the decolonisation. And this, this was a very interesting one. One of the countries I'm, I'm particularly interested in is, is Haiti. Um, as a society, it's, it's at, at one time it was for France, the most lucrative colony owned. If you look at, in terms of the size of the country, it, it is not that 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 large. Um, and now today, it, it, about one, about 10 million people, inhabitants. Um, and at that time, you know, France and, and was gaining its wealth because of during the colonial times, that is, was gaining it well because of the plantations it had in Haiti. How I make that connection to current climate change is the fact that the kinds of patterns of extractive um, agriculture, the kinds of um, environmental practices that were, pra that were put into place during colonialism meant that communities in order to get things like income and, and, and sources of, 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 of energy, meant that communities in Haiti had to um, engage in certain kinds of um, deforestation, engage in environmental practices um, that were colonial practices at the very beginning. And over time, we know that climate change is an, a phenomenon that, has, that historically is, is hundreds of years in the making. Right, so we have to link how that col colonialism happened to why these countries are mo are very exposed and 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 experience um, the kinds of devastation they experience now after one um, one environmental event or one catastrophe. So, and this is why we need plurality of voices because. You know, it's a relatively new phenomenon to hear that, oh, climate change is, is a colonial issue. And like, then you've got Keston from these communities who have, you know, are on the, on the front lines of, of, of colonisation, if you so wish, telling us this is why it is, you know. Um, and that's fascinating. So, again, another thing, to get these voices in, into our classrooms to give this different perspective. I mean, I, I also realised from another conversation that using the word stakeholders is probably not very good term either, you know, everyone's got a stake in so well actually there's some people who, you know, a stake kind of assumes part ownership, even where it's got equal ownership of something and things like that. Whereas you listen to someone like, like Keston who's talking about uh, from from our part of Ireland in places like Haiti, the reason why they have problems with deforestation, the reason why there are no more trees in Haiti to suppress the carbon, uh, the reason why that we have the colonial powers are producing it's because of this process that took place and so he says from this point of view climate change has actually been a process that started 100 years in the making he doesn't take the industrial revolution as the start of climate change he goes back even further to the time of of the colonization particularly of the americas as the start of climate change which is really really interesting but again you would not get that perspective from somebody else um, so that's really cool. Right, last three now. Now we move on to the top three now, if you so wish. They get a bit longer now, so they've got their own page each now. 
<clears throat> and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take a picture of this one and tag Alistair in, because Alistair was meant to be here at the conference, but um, still recovering from illness and didn't really want to make the journey. So I said to Alistair, I'll tell you what, Alistair, I said I was planning to use your, one of your clips anyway, but at least we'll have your voice present at the conference. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, I'll so Alistair, I'll, uh, here we go, this is going to be you. So this is really intriguing. So someone is a lot close to home um, in Northern Ireland. And just to explain this, Ussons and Demons is the kind of term they use in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So Ussons is like your, your in-group, your community, your, the people that you hang out with that you can identify with. And then other people, other communities, they're Demons. So usons and lemons, yeah. So and so that when he refers to that, that's what he's talking about. Um, and it gives an opportunity for us to kind of break down those stereotypes. Uh, so at first when they walk in, they're wearing that uniform, there are some of them, and, and the first thing we do is get to know their names. And then we start to talk about issues. Then we start to talk about the things that the young people are interested in. And all of a sudden, what we realize, and this is, this is a, a, a cracker, a weaker, as we say here, <laughs> altercation at first, the realization, see demons, they actually don't all think the same thing. Actually, there's as much diversity of opinion with Emmons as there is with Ussons. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't really think that. To, to try and break down the, the fact that that was unusual, and I'm really glad to say that whenever we have the young people together now, you, you just don't have anything of that. So we have, we've normalized the fact they can yeah. contact each other. And then what you do, you're building from that into opportunities for them to get to know each other and um, get really to understand where they're coming from. So we looked at one occasion with that class um, at identity. So I said to them, right, how do you define yourself in terms of ethnicity, race, nationality, language, and religion? Um, because then all the stereotypes would come in. So I never forget one story or one, one of the pupils from St. Michael's when it came to his turn to share. Uh, he said, I'm a Catholic. Okay, yeah, my, my people are, yeah, you're St. Michael's, you're Catholic, yeah, that registers. Atheist? What? How can you be a Catholic <laughs> and an atheist? Is that not a complete contradiction in terms? He says, I'm a Catholic atheist who's a unionist. Hold on a minute. <laughs> but Catholics can be unionists? Who's a member of the Alliance Party, which is the middle ground party here that isn't aligned with either side. Oh, yeah. And that moment was just brilliant in terms of like the metaphorical shattering of stereotypes left, right, and center. When all of a sudden we were getting to realize, yeah, you are a richly, deeply nuanced individual human being. Yes, you may be part of this group, but you're an individual within that group. That is one of my. I mean, I, I enjoyed every single conversation I had for this podcast, but the one with Alistair was one, is definitely one of my favourites. Um, and I, I keenly get to listen to this one in particular because uh, he talks about this being part of what's called a shared education programme, which is, which is part of um, Northern Ireland's way of, of, of reconciliation, really, between, you know, between the, 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 the people, the internal conflict there. And, um, yeah, and so it's, it's just... It's a perfect example of when you get two groups of people who appear to be at loggerheads and are completely opposing polar opposites, and you get them talking to each other, you realise you have a lot more in common than you first thought. Um, and 
I think it's just it's just a wonderful story. And uh, the bit just before that little clip he talked about was the first time he took his students to their their quote unquote rival school, you know, to St Michael's, and uh, and he said that when the when the kids first walked through the uh, the lunch the, the lunch hall to get their sandwiches, he said it was like a Western saloon. You know, like every, like all the kids, like stopped and two hundred pairs of eyes stopped and looked at these kids. And he said that his kids from his from Lurgan College physically moved closer together, like a like, kind of like safety herd safety kind of thing. But but now that doesn't happen because of this shared education thing. They they go visit each other's school quite often now, and it's it's amazing just that power of of um, conversation. So um, strongly recommend you listen to that one. Okay, last two then. Um, privilege of, of talking to white brave woman Candice Lloyd, uh, who is of the Mati, who is um, a culture in <coughs> in Canada where you have First Nation and Indigenous people, um, and the Mati. Right up until very very recently, were, were very stigmatised as a group because they are the product again is not a very good word human word. They are the result, shall I say, of white colonials breeding with indigenous people. But now it's starting to become more and more acceptable. Matia now becoming a lot more visible, a lot more, you know, things are changing a lot there now, and they're talking about their story quite a lot. So she was an amazing person to speak to with regards, regards to this. And, um, and of course, these folks have a unique perspective about how we can reconnect to the land, because that is their culture. You know, their culture is about being in, in symbiotic relationship with land, and that's something we need to connect with. So, so Candice used her, her expertise regarding how we can be doing that, and I think this is something worthwhile for our, our students to listen to. When you connect yourself to the land to grow things, and this is what I, I'm all about, that growth and growing and learning from the land, when you are able to even just plant even if all you want to do is a flower garden that supports edible flowers or that you want to do something for um, pollinators so you can have a pollinating garden that's fantastic it's a step in the right direction because it brings in your natural uh, area foods and herbs and things that are sustainable within your area the other thing about it is that you're going to start recognizing you're going to start going out you're going to start looking at your soil. You're going to start looking at your plants. You're going to start looking at your trees. You're going to start looking at your neighbor's plants and trees. And you're going to start looking at your town's plants and trees. And you're going to start looking at your overall globe. And that's going to start connecting. And you're going to start looking at water. And you're going to start looking at, well, what's better water? And you're going to look at fertilizer, whether or not you should be buying it in the store, or can you make it yourself? Mm. Um, can you make a tea bag? And, and that's awful way to call it, especially for people who like tea. But uh, we used to take uh, chicken manure or rabbit manure or any other kind of well broken down manures and make um, a sack with it from the old grain sacks, like the burlap sacks, mm -hmm. and we'd throw it in a big jug of water. So it'd be like this big barrel of rainwater that we'd collect, right? Um, and when we needed to, to water our plants, we'd water it from that. Oh, yeah. That would have constant fertilization um, from a very mild fertilization. Oh, and never had to worry about mosquitoes because mosquitoes don't like that kind of stuff. So, um, and it was good. That's, and, and when you become aware of your space and where you grow and what you're doing, 
you're going to become more aware of what your community is doing. You're going to become more aware of what uh, your country, your your town, or your local grocer is doing. Then you're going to notice that your um, country is doing. Then you're going to start looking at what your global is not doing or mm. is doing. Uh, and that's a sudden awareness for some. Some will like just the light will go on. It's like, oh wow, okay, uh, yeah, that's not what we want to do. And then try to make changes. Others will slowly come to the realization. Uh, I find that our young people are quick to pick that up. So if you're embedding it in your curriculum, you're putting it mm. in right in there, they're quick to pick it up. So, um, yeah, and Candice actually does a lot, quite a lot of school talks and school workshops as well. So so she, she talks about how, how she helps teachers as well with stuff in the curriculum. But, yeah, it's starting that small, like noticing even your, your, you know, your local water course. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have done this with your, with your students, where you're like, okay, this drain or this stream or this ditch, what would the journey of a drop of water or would be, you know, how, and then, and then obviously eventually it would work, it doesn't matter how long it takes, but it would work its way into the global circulation system of the oceans. And that just, and that alone just like blows kids' minds. And that's a really good way of connecting that ditch by that school or that drain from there or, you know, or that, the local stream or river to the global scheme of things. So. That's just one example. There's now a website that can do that. Yeah. You can drop a raindrop and follow it, and it will show you where it goes. Yeah. you. Yeah. Like, I showed it to my year 12s, and they were just like, right. Miss, can we do this all lesson? It's like, no. But you, you, got cool. you, you got to it, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. So tag, 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 tag us. Yes. I've got to find it. it. Yeah, and then, and then say, this is the, yeah, brilliant. Let me I'll find it, it, but it might, it's going to take me a while. It's interesting, this connection thing, because I don't know if anyone else teaches AQA or whether you've had the pre-release. But there's a bit in there about recycling rates across the UK, and the mm. highest recycling rate is like East Yorkshire, and the lowest is New York and London. And the first thing my GCSE group said to me was, like, maybe if those people live in a much more rural area, they pay more attention to our environment mm. and where your waste goes, and therefore mm. we're more likely to recycle. Whereas if you are in a city, London, you feel less connected to your environment, so you will just. Mm. And I thought it was quite interesting yeah. and links to what she's saying about feeling more connected to that land oh. and therefore worrying about it more. What a very it's true, interesting it? thought. Yeah. You've never seen yeah. something like the beauty or like anything yeah. slightly pristine if you're just in the city all the time. Then no, what, guess, what is nature? What is the value of nature if you're never really? And so why would you make the effort to put it in a different bit? Yeah. And I suppose maybe is also if you're in an urban environment, you get the sense that someone's going to clean up the mess after you anyway because you've got street cleaners, you've got yeah. people just empty rubbish. You know that thing's going to you get that little thing that drives on their drone sweeps up so. Mm. Yeah, I have a real big issue with getting students to value more like to sort of like connect to nature when it's like, you know, like, you know, that feeling of being in a forest and then obviously they have students saying, I don't, I've never been in a forest. So you yeah. so constantly think about when you work in a city, those sort of like differences. I think it's like some things like, um, we've just been teaching glaciation, why it's so hard to teach mm. them about this landscape they've never seen. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I actually had a sick formal. We took them out of Wolverhampton mm. on a field trip, and it was a bit wet. And he had his wet coat. And he just looked and said, "What? Why do we want to be here with all these trees? Where is?" And he was serious, serious. Where are the buildings? Why have you brought us yeah. here? And it was a sick formal. It was really amazing because it wasn't that far away from where we lived. But he just hated it. He just couldn't wait to get back. Mm. My last one. I have to end this one. 
So to amazing people, Chantal and Akira, and if you get the chance to go to their talk tomorrow at 2 o'clock, uh, please, 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 please do. So, um, so this is uh, Chantal and Akira, and I'll put this number one because this summarizes the whole thing about having conversations. So they're running something called the Voices Project, uh, something that um, you know we've been helping out with, and you've helped out with as well. And yeah, it's listening to collect marginalized voices, but use them within the curriculum, so it's a natural thing. So I'm just going to give a little bit of plug for the Voices Project as well. Uh, but if you can get to their, their um, session tomorrow, it'd be amazing. So it's the last one. So if people listening then, uh, bearing in mind that you know we've not just got geography teachers listening and geographers, you know, hopefully we've got plenty of, of general public listening. So can you kind of, so Akira, can you tell us a little bit about the Voices Project and what you're aiming to try to achieve? Uh, yeah, so um, the Voices Project is an oral histories slash oral geographies project um, that focuses and centers uh, the voices of socially and economically marginalized communities in the UK. Um, and the whole point of the project is to be able to explore different people's stories about identity, place, migration and empire in Britain um, and link it to wider conversations within geography about the world, about development, about inequality, um, but also about that connection and how we define ourselves and attach ourselves to the places we live and grow up and travel to. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of stemmed out of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and me being a young student of colour and definitely not seeing myself in the curriculum and especially being like a young black geographer um, I wanted to be part of this project in order to make sure that young voices like me get to see themselves and what they learn and actually explore like the really complex conversations about identity and about culture and ethnicity. Let's listen to a little clip then so this this clip is from one of your contributors and just to give a sense of of, of what it sounds like. So when students are engaging with their work in the classroom and then the teacher will stick on something that sounds like this. I think it time. simplifies yeah. what your culture is to being like just the, the, the accessible and popular things that people know it for. That's and it. that's not actually like the essence of it. Mm. You can't even yourself quantify like, you can't quantify culture and you can't like understand the whole of your culture yourself. Mm. But for someone else to see you solely through like three things like food music and dance it's mm. very like i don't know like quite limited quite uncomfortable it is it is because i know so the first time i played one of the voices that we'd collected in its entirety so or certainly a a, a block of it which is not necessarily how we intend to use it going forwards but just to see what the student reactions were and uh, from my class, I got the whole the whole class year tends to listen to this section, and I got them to fill in a little form about it, so they didn't have to make any comments outwardly. But when I read the forms back, um, it said, "You know, one thing you've taken from this," and one of my students said, "That's like my story. I had to leave my my home too." Yeah. Wow. Um. Yeah, so Chantal's got obviously a specific group of, of, of students um, where she teaches, and she had a student who's completely of a different outlet, completely different culture, completely different group of people, who was able to take one thing that they heard in this Voices project and connect to it and make a, make a connection. 
And for that student, that must have been an exceptionally powerful moment to say that this is this is another group of people who I'm not a part of. They're, they're Devons, but they have the same experience as me. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a great resource. It's a free resource. It's been um, supported by the by the GA. Uh, this is one of their slides that they'll use tomorrow, um, and. They get you to talk about how they could use this within their within their within your curriculum. You know, how would you be able to use it? They'll ask you for a bit of um, feedback as well because it's just been launched. It's a pilot, so that they're going to want a bit of feedback. If you do get the chance to uh, to listen to that, that'd be great. I was just going to say the presentation's at uh, nine. Tomorrow. Oh, nine tomorrow. I need to re retweet my thing. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and to finish off the the other thing I've done because me me loving maths. Um, I've mapped all the guests so I can see where where I'm representing and where I'm not representing, um, things like that. So um, you can access this through this, through this, or through the because um, you've got you've got the cards, you've got the QR card there. You can just go for the map on there, and so you can look. At, obviously, I've got a lot of people in the United Kingdom. There's uh, so a deal, a deal, a deal behind that coffee cup right there. Um, this is uh, Lin Ho, Vietnam, a colleague I used to work with. Very interesting person. Uh, that's Keston. So yeah, but also what I've done here is that when people have mentioned their brews, because they have to talk about where they're, what they're drinking, um, I put the the company headquarters, but I, I then try and research where that brew has been sourced from. So you can see here quite a bit of a you know consumerism in the global north, but and the produce in the global south. This from Joanna Mendez, she said, I think I get, I think. White coffee is sourced from the furthest north possible. This is a, an island, I think that's the Azores, where they grow coffee. It's the furthest, the only place in, because technically they're part of Europe, the European continental shelf, right? It's the only place in Europe where they grow coffee. So, um, and that's, that's Joanna there. So it's Portuguese, yeah, Portuguese Azores. So yeah, and I'm, I've um, really close friend of mine from Malawi, it's a few trips, so it's gonna be amazing. So yeah, it's, um, do you can get to use this as a, I thought Quits actually might be able to use that as a geographical resource as well. And uh, when you click on these, you say, you know, it says, um, here's the website and here's their webpage about sustainability. Can you verify claims? Can you can you track where they're talking about some of that? And you could argue that some of those are a bit of greenwashing, really. So, um, yeah. So, there we go, folks. That's my coffee and geography journey. Just nine little short clips. Um, I think, let's see, so what, you've heard 45 minutes worth of audio, I think I'm up to 26 hours, maybe now, perhaps a bit more than that, of audio now. Uh, I didn't listen to every single one back, um, and just a little tip, a little, a little kind of um, fact for you, which will make you giggle, is that in order to get through these edits, I listen back to back to them at 1.8 speed. So it sounds like a chip. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, folks. Thank you for Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging.